of you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn in your Bible again to the book of Proverbs. This time we're turning to Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Please follow along with me as I read just this one verse. This is what God says. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for this book. God, thank you for supplying to us your word, your mind, your power. God, we we live in a world where we hear hundreds, thousands of voices, each of them telling us what we ought to think, how we ought to live, what we ought to do, each of them holding out for us a vision of the good life. And God, we would be lost. Where would we be without your word, without you speaking to us and telling us who you are and who we are and who we are in you and what we can trust you for and what way we ought to go to tell us what what is the truly good life. God, thank you for your word. Thank you even for warnings in your word, like the, like this passage. Thank you for telling us where we shouldn't go because that's not where you want us to be because it doesn't lead us to where we want to be because it doesn't lead us towards you. Thank you for the warnings of your word. Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for everything that you have said. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are living, that you are working in this word. Please be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, be with us as we open this book As we listen to what you say, God, please work in our lives. Make us who you want us to be. Help us to live for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we we will begin today as we've begun each week in this series with a story, a parable for everyone, young and old. Benjamin was 11 years old the oldest of his brothers and sisters. And as the oldest, he often spent days at home with his mother, helping her with her work around the house, helping her with his younger siblings. But his favorite days were the days he spent apprenticing with his father Jacob in his carpentry shop. He loved the satisfaction of work done well, of watching uh, a, a perfectly straight beam or axle or table leg emerging from a piece of raw olive wood or cedar. He felt proud that his dad was starting to entrust real jobs to him, letting him use the tools himself and gently correcting him, helping him correct his own mistakes. Mostly, he just loved the time alone with his dad. One day, Jacob and Benjamin were delivering a set of stools to a farm outside of Emmaus where they lived, And as they went on their way, Benjamin noticed a field that seemed to be abandoned. The the wall seemed to be in decent shape, but the the field was just totally overgrown. And, And Benjamin asked his father, Dad, what happened here? And Jacob sighed and paused, and Benjamin could tell he was trying to decide how much to say. 
Finally, he spoke. Something sad happened here, Benjamin. It's, it's not important for you to know whose field this is, but I think you can learn something from what happened. The man whose field this is has had a number of serious problems the last few years. We, he and I grew up together, and he had a temper, even when he was young. But a few years ago, it got so bad that, that no one wanted to work with him anymore because of the words he would say if, if they weren't doing things just the way he wanted it, if they made a mistake in the field. He began to keep to himself after that, maybe out of embarrassment, and he began to try to just do the work on his own. But without the accountability of other guys coming and working alongside him, he began, he began to stop working when he should have kept working. He began taking days off when he should have been working. As he, and he, he took days off he couldn't afford. And Jacob paused again. He said, as he got more alone, he began to drink too much wine. That made it harder for him to keep up with his work. Last year, he didn't get his harvest in on time, and the crop was ruined. And he owes money to most of the shops in town, ours included, and he has nothing to plant this year. And Jacob looked directly at his son. He said, Benjamin, I want you to understand something. From, from one way of looking at things, the farmer who, whose far, field this is, he had many different kinds of problems. But from another way of looking at it, he had just one. One problem that showed itself in his inability to guard what he said, in his inability to work when he needed to work, in his ability, inability to drink in moderation. Benjamin, a man without self-control, is like a city broken into and left without walls. We've been spending the summer in the book of Proverbs seeking to learn what it is to live with wisdom. That's why we've called the series Words to Live By, because wisdom is a way of life. Wisdom enables us to live in a way that goes with the grain of the universe and not against it, that fits with how we were made and what we were made for. We are faced with hundreds of decisions every day about which we have no specific command from God. Should I say this right now, or this, or nothing? Should I take the afternoon off to spend with my family, or should I push through and get this done? Should I, I've got this stimulus check. Should I use this stimulus check to get a new set of tires for the car I've needed that? Or should I give it to my friend who's out of work? Or should I put it away in savings? What should I do? Should I, should I eat this bowl of ice cream? How, how often can I eat a bowl of ice cream before I'm eating too much ice cream? We have, we have no command about those things. We have to use wisdom. Wisdom helps us see if I go this way, here's where it leads, and that's not where I want to go. Wisdom helps us find the way. But the way the book of Proverbs helps us grow in wisdom is not by giving us just mainly tips or life hacks about when you're in this situation, do this, but when it's like this, do that. The main way Proverbs helps us grow in wisdom is by training us to be a certain kind of person. The kind of person for whom wise decisions have become second nature because our heart and our mind have been shaped by wisdom. And you can see that in our proverb today. Solomon says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's not a life hack. That's not saying, in this situation, do this. It's saying, if you want to live as you were made to live, if you want to live with the grain of the universe, you must Become a person of self-control. Now, the last few weeks as a church, we've been memorizing Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if I, if I were sitting one-on-one with you and I were to ask you, what of that list do you really feel the need for right now? I'm guessing there'd be lots of people who would say, joy. So this has been a hard season. Or maybe you'd say, ah, peace. There's so much uncertainty. What I wouldn't give for some peace. The young parents are saying, gentleness with my kids. I wonder how many of you would say, self-control. And yet, as we're going to see, self-control is absolutely essential to a life well-lived. There's not a single person here whose life, whose family, whose community would not be improved if he or she would grow in self-control, and God holds it out to us. So we want to look at three questions this morning. What is self-control? What happens if we lack it? And how can we gain it? What is it? What happens if we lack it? And how can we gain it? First, what is self-control? Now, the the Hebrew phrase translated here, a man without self-control is literally a man whose spirit has no restraint. His inner life is off the leash. His, His life or her life from day to day or moment to moment is not directed by purpose or principle, but passion. Not, not by intentionality, but impulse. How he feels right now. What he wants right now. What he thinks right now. Have you ever seen a child, a small child, walking a very large dog? And you look at that and you think, that dog is walking the child, and not vice versa. That's this person. His impulses, his desires are controlling him. They're dictating where his feet go. We all recognize that our momentary desires, they can't run the show, right? We, we all know what it's like. You look out the window, and it's sunny and breezy outside, and all you want is to go for a bike ride, or play a round of golf, or just sit outside and read. But you can't just walk out on work, or if you're a stay-at-home parent, on your kids, right? That's a desire we just can't follow. You can't say out loud everything that comes into your mind, especially when you're angry, You cannot eat as many Oreos as you want. You need something that rules your inner life. Something that says to your good and right desires, yes, let's do that. And to your wrong desires, no, I'm not going that way. We need something that restrains our spirit. Some of our desires are wrong, aren't they? Now, some of them are fine desires just coming at the wrong time. It's not wrong to want to go outside and read a book. You just can't go in the middle of AP history or in the middle of the presentation to the executive officers. But some of our desires are wrong at any time. A a desire to speak a really cutting word just for the satisfaction of hurting someone who hurt you first. And, and attracting to, a, a preoccupation with, a, a fantasizing about someone who is not your spouse. A desire to escape consequences for our actions by lying about them. Whether you're a Christian or not, you are made in the image of God. And because of that, you have a conscience that reminds you there is such a thing as right and wrong. And whether you're a Christian or not, you are in the family line of Adam, which means you have indwelling sin that makes you want things your conscience knows is wrong. And self-control, self-control is the facet of wisdom that enables you to embrace and follow the right and reject the wrong. 
to do what you ought to do and not just what you want to do. It's what enables you not to pick up your phone every time it buzzes or to spend 30 minutes scrolling Facebook when you should be present with your family. It's what enables you to speak a gentle word when a harsh word is the first one in your mind. It's what enables you to have a salad instead of a sandwich, to have one drink when everybody else is having three, to get up and exercise when you'd rather sleep. It's what enables you to be diligent even when you're working from home and your boss can't see how you spend your time. It's what enables you to turn from anxious thoughts to the truth of God's sovereign care for you and sleep instead of fretting all night. It's what enables you to open the Bible before you open your email. You can't live well, live wisely without it. And everyone needs it. Self-control is one of the themes of Paul's letter to Titus in the New Testament. If you read chapter 2, Paul, Paul is giving instructions to Titus about how he should lead the church in Crete, what he should tell them. And, and this is what he says. He says, older men are to be self-controlled. Older women are to train the young women to be self-controlled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Everyone needs it. Self-control is the facet of wisdom that enables us to embrace and follow our good desires and reject our wrong desires. That's what it is. So secondly, what happens if we lack self-control? What happens if we lack it? This is the heart of what this proverb is about. It's, the, about. it's about the man or woman or teenager or child who doesn't have self-control. What's that person like? Solomon says he's like a city broken into and left without walls. Now, Kenosha has no city walls. I haven't heard any calls for Kenosha to build city walls. We, we live in the middle of a massive country. We have a standing army. We have a nuclear arsenal. I bet very few of you lie awake at night afraid of being invaded and enslaved by a foreign power. But that, at the time Proverbs was written, that danger was a reality. In fact, if you, if you remember the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah in the Old Testament, in the first chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a Jew. He was in exile in Babylon. And, and one day, some men came from Judea to where he was, and he asked them, how's everyone back home? And this is, this is their report to him, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And when Nehemiah heard that Jerusalem had no walls, the Bible says that he wept for days. A city without walls was defenseless. It had no protection. It was totally exposed to its enemies. It was a disaster waiting to happen. And Solomon is saying, if you lack self-control, you're a disaster waiting to happen. You're defenseless against your enemies. So what, what enemies do we have? Well, some of you do have genuine human enemies. You have maybe a rival at work who would love to take your job, would love to beat you out for promotion, maybe a neighbor who, who slanders you, gossips about you. Maybe, maybe you, maybe you're a public figure and you have critics who would love to see you disgraced in front of everybody. And if you lack self-control, you're sooner or later going to fail in some way and give them exactly what they're hoping for. But I think the greater danger is not from merely human enemies, but spiritual enemies. Like Satan, the, the tempter, prowling like a lion, Peter says, 
looking for someone to devour, watching for weakness. And, and not just your enemy outside of you, but the enemy within, your own, the sin of your own heart. You, you may remember what God said to Cain. Do you remember Cain? Cain was the older son of Adam and Eve, and Cain's younger brother was Abel. Abel made a, an offering to the Lord, and God approved of it and accepted it. But of Cain's offering, Genesis says, he, God had no regard, and, and Cain was angry. And God spoke to him. He said to him, Genesis 4, beginning in verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Either we will rule over our sinful desires, we will say to them, No, I don't serve you, or sin will lie in wait, catch us with our back turned, and overpower us. For Cain, unchecked anger became murder, killed his brother. Unchecked resentment becomes words that can't be unspoken and won't be forgotten. Unchecked desire for your boss's respect becomes an inability to turn your phone off and be present with your family. Looking at pictures online becomes meeting people online, becomes meeting people in person. If we do not have self-control, sin will overpower us. This proverb is meant to sober us. The, The reason a city has a wall is that it has enemies. And we need self-control. We need that protection for the same reason. The person without self-control is defenseless against his enemies, especially the enemy within. And if sin has its way with us, the end of that road isn't just a ruined life. In Proverbs chapter 9, wisdom and folly are pictured as two women throwing feasts in their houses. And each of them is calling out to people walking by, come and eat. And, and chapter 9, Proverbs chapter 9, tells us that, that those who go into the feast of wisdom find life. But this is what it says of the person who goes into Folly's house. Chapter 9, verse 18, But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, in the grave. The way of sin is the way to death, to eternal separation from God. Okay, you say, I'm convinced. I know I need self-control. Where do we get it? And this is where we often go wrong. Because even secular people see the need for self-control. They know they need to eat better. They need to exercise. They need to spend less time looking at screens. They need to get less angry. But they pursue it by mere willpower. Just try harder. Impose structure and discipline Read books about psychology and neuroscience. Try to change the way you think, to change the way you live. And there's nothing wrong with willpower or discipline or neuroscience, but none of those things will solve this problem because it's spiritual. The problem is sin. We want bad things, and we want them a lot. So finally, how can we gain self-control? Now, we should acknowledge up front that Proverbs 25, 28 does, on its own, does not answer this question. God put this verse in your Bible to show you how much you need self-control, not where to find it. But we are not left adrift. The whole, in some ways, the whole book of Proverbs is the answer to this question, because the whole book of Proverbs is an invitation to wisdom. It's an invitation to a wise life. Now, some parts of the book 
compel us, woo us towards wisdom by showing us how good the life is that, that wisdom leads to. Some, of, some parts of the book drive us towards wisdom by showing us how bad the life is that folly leads to. And this verse is more like that. And, and warnings like this, are, those are still God's kindness to us. It's so good of him to tell us where that road goes so we don't go down it. But we also want to know how to grow here. And this book tells us that too. In chapter 9, verse 10, this is what he says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom, including self-control, comes from the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God, afraid of being punished, not if you belong to him. Of that kind of fear, God says over and over in Scripture to his people, fear not. But the fear of the Lord means, the fear of the Lord means having God be in your life what he is in reality. Massive, holy, worthy, glorious, central. When you fear God, he is the defining reality of your life. Instead of your life revolving around you with God being kind of one part of your life along with your family and work and the house and the gym, Your life revolves around God, and everything else takes its place in relationship to him. C.S. Lewis says it this way, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immensely superior to yourself, unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself in comparison. You do not know God at all. To know God truly is to know him as very big and you as very small, and to keep that perspective is the fear of the Lord. Okay, so what's, that, what's the connection between that and self-control? Self-control doesn't just come by kind of strengthening your will until it's stronger than your wrong desires. It's, it comes from cultivating other desires until the wrong desires can't compete. So maybe your struggle with self-control is with food and drink. You go to them when you're lonely. When you're stressed, the the pleasure of them takes the edge off of whatever you're experiencing in life. Self-control comes as you find the love of God a greater, more satisfying refuge than food and drink. And you want to run to him instead of to that. Or maybe your self-control struggle is angry words. They just, they come out at your spouse or your kids. They come out online. Self-control doesn't just look like clamping your lips shut or putting your phone in a drawer, although those have a place at times. Self-control comes, self-control looks like your desire to please God by imitating his gentleness and his patience, that desire becoming greater, becoming overwhelming in comparison to your desire to use your words to get everybody around you to just do what you want them to do. Remember, Proverbs isn't about gaining life hacks. It's about becoming a certain kind of person. And Proverbs says we become that person through the fear of the Lord, through a relationship with God in which he is so great and so good and so real to you that your desires change and your life follows. And the Bible tells us furthermore what about God when we behold it, is most transforming. So let's, let's hold this idea that the fear of, of the Lord trains us in self-control up against a passage in the New Testament that kind of fills out this idea. So turn to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. 
we've already seen earlier, we talked about how that's the passage where Paul tells older men, older women, younger women, younger men, that they need self-control. And in in verse 11, he tells us where self-control comes from. This is what God says through Paul. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says that what trains us to live a self-controlled life isn't fearing God's punishment, but receiving his grace, the favor he extends to sinners. Paul says that the grace of God has appeared. It's become visible. How? In the person of his son, Jesus, who Paul says gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So we remember we saw in Proverbs, we saw in Proverbs chapter 9 that sin and folly lead to death. But the grace of God appeared in sending his son to suffer the death that our sin deserves so that sinners can have life instead. Paul says that that this grace that appeared, it brings salvation. Salvation is not something we accomplish through self-control, through finally kicking our addiction or getting our anger under control. It's something we receive by grace. Full forgiveness is a gift which we receive by trusting in Jesus. And as we rely on that grace, as we, as we rely on the truth that our acceptance with God depends not on our accomplishment, but on Christ's accomplishment for us, as we rely on that grace, as we entrust ourselves to that grace, it trains us in self-control. As we come to know a God of such holiness that only the death of his son could satisfy justice, and a God of such love that he gave him freely, as we come to know that God, as we, as we behold him, we will renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We won't want to live for them anymore. We want to live for him who loved us and gave his son for us. He will take his place at the center of our lives. We will fear him rightly. And that will create a whole new life. You'll begin to see everything in your life as a way of loving God. So maybe you've, been, maybe you've struggled to be diligent in your work because fear of losing your job just wasn't that motivating for you. But now you see your work as a way to please and imitate a God who works, a God who made the world and tends it. And your, your desire to please him, to be like him, now enables you to exercise self-control where before you had no control. Or maybe your self-control struggle is in your thoughts. You always seem to go back to dwelling on old hurts, ways you've been wounded by words in the past. But now you know that you can love God with your mind. And so when those thoughts come, you can steer them back to gratitude that God sees all your hurts, that he is going to use even those things for your good. When you have a relationship with God based on grace, your love for him and desire to please him train you in a self-controlled life. And not only that, if you've trusted In God's grace, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who bears in us, as we already saw in Galatians 5, the fruit of self-control. He cultivates in us what we could never generate by mere willpower. This is how self-control comes. When we face temptation, we don't just grit our teeth and try to get through it. 
We turn to God, remembering his love for us, asking him to help us love him in return, asking him to to give us strength to follow his ways. Self-control will still take effort until Jesus comes, but for Christians, it's empowered effort, motivated not by fear or shame, but by love for a God who loved us first. Has this happened for you? Have, you? have you renounced your old life with you at the center and all your old hopes of gaining control over your desires just through your own power, through, through your own strength? And have you cast yourself on the grace of God? And if you have, if you're a Christian, as you continue to pursue self-control, as, are you doing it as someone fighting alone or as someone dearly loved? already accepted, someone God is for. There is no one here who doesn't need self-control. Without it, we are defenseless against our enemies, especially the enemy within. And it's only found one place, through beholding the grace of God in Jesus Christ, entrusting ourselves to it, and responding to it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to this God now in prayer. God, thank you for what you have done in Jesus Christ for us. Thank you that our hope doesn't hinge on our accomplishment. Thank you that our acceptance with you depends not on our righteous record, but on the righteous record of your son, Jesus. Thank you that you have not just told us to to turn from things, to say no, to clean ourselves up, but you have called us to a holy life by giving us a Holy Spirit. You have given us your Son so that we can know that we belong to you through faith. We can know that we are your children and you have given us your own Spirit to enable us to live in ways that are good and right and pleasing to you. God, thank you. Thank you for your Son and your Spirit. And we ask that you would help us to live lives of self-control, not, not just so that we can say no to things that are embarrassing, things that we wish weren't part of our lives, but so we can say yes to a life that is glorifying to you, that we can say yes to courage and yes to compassion and yes to joy and yes to hope so we can actively follow the way that you have laid out for us in your word God, thank you for the church. Thank you that we are together following this way. Please give us your spirit. Give us your grace to live self-controlled lives that are to your glory and the glory of your son's name in which we pray. Amen.